Father in heaven, we ask now that you would humble us as we prepare to hear your word, that you would humble us to hear the truth, to receive it by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would strengthen us to not merely be hearers of the word, but you'd strengthen us to be doers of the word. We pray you'd remind us of the joy of the gospel as we listen to this message. We pray you'd remind us of the joy of being adopted, the joy of knowing God as our our Father, the, the, the joy of being forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation as we listen this morning. Lord, I pray you'd help me to faithfully preach your word, that that Christ would be exalted. Help me to say what is true and what is right, and keep me from saying anything that would not be true. Lord, we pray you'd strengthen us by the truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the greatest blessing you've ever received? I mean, you can think there are a lot of different categories of blessings. It's good and right to think about physical blessings that God's given you, physical health and, and strength. It's good to think about material blessings God's given you. We, we, we vary in how we've received those material blessings, but likely you drove here in a vehicle this morning. You've got clothes on this morning that God provided for you. There's blessings that God has given you that have come from His hand that you can thank Him for. There's the gift of relational blessings of family, of church family, of friendship that God has just been so kind to bless us with. It's a good exercise to rehearse God's blessings in your life. But for Christians, we understand that spiritual blessings are blessings that we can enjoy in this life and in the next life. So we thank God for physical blessings and material blessings and relational blessings, but we understand that the presence of God's Spirit that came to dwell in us through faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion, that those spiritual blessings last us not only for this life, but carry us on into the next life. So in light of that, Christian, what is the greatest blessing you've ever received? Well, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, makes the case that adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Adoption, by God's grace being brought into His family. In adoption, He makes those that He justified His beloved sons, places His Holy Spirit inside of them, dwelling with them now and forevermore. You see, while justification is an amazing blessing of the gospel, justification, being declared righteous in the sight of God, an amazing blessing of the gospel. Packer refers to that as the primary blessing of the gospel, but he makes the case it's not the highest. Why the distinction here? Why kind of quibble between those two wonderful gifts? Well, he says this, justification makes us right with God, the holy judge. What a wonderful thing to be made right because we're guilty. We've sinned against God. We've broken His commandments. We've rejected His love. It's only by His mercy that He would justify us and declare us not guilty. But in the doctrine of adoption, we're loved by God the Father. In other words, justification... God's so gracious to get sin out of the way. And the greatest gift of the gospel is God Himself. 
We get God, sin out of the way through the work of Jesus Christ, and the result is those who put their faith in Jesus, we get a relationship with the everlasting God. Not just any ordinary relationship, but the relationship of being called his sons. Packer states, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. As we continue our study in the New Testament letter of Galatians, this morning we look at the doctrine of adoption. Hopefully you've picked up on that in the theme of the prayers and the songs this morning. Adoption, that by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Jesus, God takes slaves and turns them into sons. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 of Galatians 4 this morning. If you're new, if you're one of our guests this morning, we're so glad you're with us. It's easy to jump into this sermon series. Uh, Just take a look at the Bible this morning. So take your copy of the Bible, or if you don't have one with you, use that pew Bible right in front of you. Turn to page 974, page 974. We're going to be in Galatians 4 verses 1 through 7. And if you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, we'd like you to use that Bible this morning and take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. Let me read for us Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The main idea that I want you to see this morning is this. God sent His Son that we might be adopted as sons. God sent His Son that we might be adopted as sons. Last week in Galatians chapter 3, we considered how God's salvation has always come by way of His promise, not through the law. The law was temporary, the Mosaic law, temporary until Christ came, and it was preparatory, appointing God's people forward to freedom that only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could bring. And Paul wanted these young churches in the region of Galatia which again would have been kind of modern-day Turkey, southern central Turkey. He wanted these young churches to know that by faith in Christ, they had already been set free from slavery and were counted as sons of God, heirs to the inheritance promised to Abraham. And here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul camps out on this idea of Christians being sons and heirs to the promise made long ago to Abraham by way of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Well, as we go through verses 1 through 7 this morning, two parts to our outline, adoption secured and adoption assured. 
two parts, adoption secured and adoption assured. First in verses 1 through 5, we see adoption secured. In the last chapter, Paul was making distinctions between God's law and God's promise, and he he showed how the law was temporary and preparatory. In chapter 3, he used a couple of illustrations to make that point. He used the illustration of a prison guard and a chaperone to show there was a a temporary and preparatory purpose to the law of Moses. And he he picks back up here in chapter 4 and uses another illustration to show that the law was temporary. Here he uses the illustration of a child who is an heir of an estate. Now, he was likely making some sort of cultural reference here, similar to what we saw back in chapter 3, again making the point that before this child grows up and reaches maturity and receives his inheritance, there's a temporary period of time where he is under a guardian. So the child already written into his father's will, already made an heir, determined to receive an inheritance, given a promise, but as long as he's a child, he's not yet of the age to receive that inheritance. Almost as if you were to leave something to your kids and say, hey, I really don't want them to receive this until they're 25, if something should happen to me, because I don't want them to blow that inheritance away at 21 and regret as they grew older what they did with that money. So culturally, in this time, some sort of reference to for a period of time being under this guardian, waiting until reaching maturity to receive the inheritance. Paul says there in verse 1 that this heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now, now slavery in that time took on the form of being a bond servant or an indentured servant. It was not like North American slavery, what we often think of culturally, that, that clearly was evil and wrong, kidnapping, man-stealing a particular race, forcing into slavery forever. Right, this was something a little different in the Roman era, certainly not void of exploitation, but generally it was a system of working that often involved payment to a servant or to a slave that would be used to eventually gain financial freedom. So back then there were no credit cards, uh, there was not social security, so if you found yourself in a position where you could not provide for yourself, where family members couldn't provide for you, there was this system of selling yourself into indentured servitude, being a, a bond servant, and it was often a temporary way to survive. So the point of the illustration here is that, practically speaking, this heir, while a child, was in the same type of position as a slave, under managers, under guardians, not yet having the freedom that one day this child would receive upon receiving the inheritance. For a time, the child's under guardians and managers, similar to a slave, will be under those guardians and managers we see here until the day set by his father. Now, what does this have to do with the law, with the gospel? Well, the Mosaic law played a similar role in God's plan for salvation. In verse 3, Paul connects this illustration to the lives of Christians, saying in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's a lot of debate, like a number of things in the book of Galatians, a lot of debate on what does elementary principles of the world mean. I think it's most likely referring 
to the law of Moses. I think that, that best fits the context here. The law, in, in a way, is one of those enslaving elements or principles of the world. The, the Jews were in bondage to the law, but also the Gentiles were in bondage as well, because even though they weren't born under the law, the law condemned them as well as sinners. They needed to be set free from sin. In context here, the Mosaic law contained elementary principles, basic principles of the world for how you are to live. Think about the Ten Commandments, basic principles about what's right and what is wrong. So in context here, the Mosaic Law contained elementary principles, and the era of the Mosaic Law was kind of like a time of growing up. Paul's saying you weren't to remain there under the law. It was preparatory, moving you forward. The point of the law to establish you in God's truth and to move you forward to something greater. The point being made to these Christians and these churches in Galatia is that reverting back to the law after they'd already received the gospel. Christ had come, they'd had the gospel preached to them and put their faith in Jesus Christ. To now revert back to living under the law would be like graduating high school and then going back to the fifth grade. Right? From the moment that you start off in kindergarten, they kind of give you the class of whatever. Like you get that as a kindergartner. They're already looking forward to the day you're going to finish your education and graduate high school. From the day you start kindergarten, you are on a trajectory, hopefully, to graduate. And once you graduate, you don't move backwards. One of the great things about getting out of high school, I'm free. Well, at least you think you are. Right? I'm free. I can make my own decisions. But then comes the real responsibility, free to pay bills, free to have a job, free to earn money, free to take on the responsibilities that mom and dad used to take on for you. Right? But you're free nonetheless. Uh, when I was a senior, I had what many people called senioritis. I was ready to get out away from the classroom. I didn't like showing up to East Mac at 7.20 in the morning and being told what to do all day. I was kind of a typical senior and 17-year-old. I was ready to move on. I wanted some more freedom. I wanted more independence in that time. These basic elementary principles of the world, they were good. The law is good, but also there was a type of restraining and a restriction that was there that looked forward to a time when freedom would come through Christ and through His Spirit. The Judaizers, those false teachers in Galatia, they were trying to take these young churches backwards by telling them that they needed faith in Jesus plus something else to be counted as God's people. For them, it was faith in Jesus plus circumcision plus adherence to the Old Testament law in order to be counted among God's righteous people. And Paul's making it clear, he's hammering home, the law was never intended to be the final word. It was temporary and preparatory to point you forward to the fulfillment of promises found in Jesus Christ. So, so don't revert back to living like a child, to living like a slave. When Christ came, God's people graduated from the law. But let's be clear, brother and sister in Christ, you never graduate from the gospel. You never move on from the gospel. Yes, the gospel is basic and it's simple enough. Christ 
died for our sins. Repent and believe the gospel. It's simple enough for a child to hear and to understand and to believe and to be converted. It's simple, but don't think of it as elementary, that you somehow move on from that. We never graduate from the gospel. we've, We've looked in Galatians to say it's wrong thinking to think you're saved by grace and you are sustained by your own works. You're saved by God's grace through faith, and you grow as a Christian. You're sanctified the same way, by God's grace through ongoing faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism, which we'll see this morning, it's the initial profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You know what our ongoing profession is of faith in Jesus? The Lord's Supper. Every time we take of the cup and the bread, we're reminded We continue to trust in Jesus. We continue to believe in His body given for us, His blood shed for us. Christ is all that we have. He is our salvation, and He is the one who sustains us until the end. To think that you graduate from the gospel is actually moving away from the gospel. That's Paul's point. The Mosaic Law was temporary until the right time appointed by God the Father. Verses 4 and 5 Two verses that contain a beautiful and brief description of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. We read in verse 4 and 5 who Jesus is and who we are as Christians through faith in Him. We see in verse 4 that God's people were under the law until Jesus came down to earth. That conjunction, that one word conjunction there, but... As it often does in Scripture, marks another grand turning point. But when the fullness of time had come, let's pause there. This refers to the date set by God the Father. Look back at the end of verse 2. That that illustration given there in ancient times that the Father determined the right time that the Son would receive his inheritance. He's using that illustration to show God determined the right time to send Jesus, the one who would bring an inheritance to the nations through his death and resurrection. God determined the time that his people were under the guardianship of the law, and he determined the time that that era would be over and a new covenant would be ushered in through Jesus Christ coming down to earth. In other words, God's divine plan always was to send Jesus his son. The gospel of Mark, that the first words of Jesus recorded there point to his, his arrival as the time of God being fulfilled. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. At the right time, God sent Jesus. Now, reading this week, scholars speculate a a number of things could be implied here with this phrase, the fullness of time. Uh, Certainly, if you look at just that time period which Jesus came into, there were a lot of cultural influences that prepared the way. The influence of the Greeks spread one language, Greek, One language that many people spoke and understood across the nations. The Greek language would be the language the gospel was proclaimed in. The language that the New Testament was originally written in. 
Now, before Jesus came, there was also Roman influence. The Roman Empire had a tremendous influence on the world. When Jesus came, in that time he came into, there was a period of Roman peace known as Pax Romana, opportunity to be able to, to move about and to spread the gospel. The Romans, high school kids, you probably know, what were they known for building? Roads. Roman roads going across nations, very roads that the apostles would travel as the feet of those taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. It was also a time religiously where the Jewish people had been prepared spiritually. I mean, you think about it, they had been suffering oppression for centuries. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the, the, the Romans, this oppression that they were experiencing in an earthly manner, growing a hope within God's people, waiting for this promised Messiah who would come to ransom captive Israel. In other words, God was at work the whole time preparing the way for Jesus. Whatever it is that's entailed here with this phrase, fullness of time, what is clear, God picked the right time. God was working in His sovereignty to orchestrate events in the world, in world history, to point to the appointed time to fulfill His promise in sending Jesus. Christian, God is sovereign. He's in control, ruling over all of history. We see this in Him sending Jesus, His Son, that He was ruling over history. And I think one implication for us, this same God who rules over history, you and I, can trust Him with our story. He's ruling over the story of every one of our lives. We see this wonderful picture here of a God who, who rules over history, and we should be reminded we can trust Him with the details and with the plans of our lives. He planned all of salvation history, and He's planning all of your history. You were born because you're His idea. He wanted to create you. Every person in this room is not a mistake, not an accident. You're part of God's plan. He created you. And, and therefore, He has the, the key to unlocking all of your story. And for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we understand it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can live a life with God. Jesus is the only way to have our sin removed, His death on the cross paying for our sin. And for those who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, we've submitted to God's sovereign rule over our lives. We need to be reminded that just as God planned all of history at the right time to send Jesus, He has good and right plans for your life. Life is hard though, right? If you could go back and talk to high school you who thought, man, I'm out of high school. Life is, is going to just get started now. As life goes on, we experience joy, but we also experience pain. As we come to experience trials in life and suffering and hardship and, and loss and death, the, the typical struggle we have is the question, why? Why is God letting this happen? Why am I going through these difficult times and situations? Why am I knowing trouble and, and sorrow? Right, brother and sister, I think we're reminded as we consider God's wisdom and His sovereignty, we need to be reminded that our faith is not in our ability to understand every difficult thing in our life as if we could figure out why hard things are happening. 
Our faith is not in our cognitive ability to try to wrap our arms around our circumstances. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in who He is. He is good. He is wise. He is right. There's a lot of things in life. The answer is just, I don't know. I don't know why I'm experiencing the hardship that I'm experiencing. But what I do know, I know God. I know He's good. I know He's wise. I know He's perfect and righteous in all His ways. I know He loves me. I can look back to Him sending Jesus as the greatest demonstration of His love. I know who God is and His character, and I trust Him. God alone is good. He is wise. He is absolutely in control over your life, working for His glory and Christian, working for your good. He's provided what you and I needed most, Jesus. And therefore, when we look back at the cross and the empty tomb, we can be strengthened with faith to look forward that He will continue to provide what we need in the trials that we face. Notice that Jesus was sent. Verse 4 continues, God sent forth His Son. That's different from you and me. We existed at the moment of conception. Okay, we weren't sent and then born. Jesus was sent and then born. Notice the order that the Apostle Paul has here. It's, It's very important. This highlights the deity of Jesus. Jesus existed before He was conceived in the womb. He always existed. This declares His divine nature. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, fully equal to God the Father in glory and majesty, and He was sent down to earth. Jesus is truly God. And we also read that Jesus is truly man. Verse 4 continues by telling us that Jesus was born of woman. So so Paul goes directly from talking about the deity of Jesus to the humanity of Jesus. When God sent His Son down to earth, Jesus did not cease to be God. There was no subtraction or, or loss of who He was. Rather, there was an addition. At the moment of conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God became a man, adding a human nature. In coming down to earth, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became truly God and truly man. The Apostle Paul is saying, He became like us. He was born of a woman. This is really important because, and I think sometimes, the humanity of Jesus, the importance of that is overlooked. We need to hold both of those together, truly God and truly man. Don't take one away because you lose Jesus and who He is if you take one of those away. But think about the significance of Him being born of a woman. It means that He identified with all of humanity by becoming like us. He took on flesh to represent us. He came in a body to give that body for us. Jesus was fully human, born of woman, born under the law, meaning under the authority of the law of Moses. The righteous and holy standard of God's law left everyone condemned except for one, Jesus. There was no human being who could perfectly even keep ten commandments, that is, until Jesus came down to earth. 
He was born under the law, meaning that he embraced submission and obedience to the law of Moses. And he showed he was the only one capable of perfectly keeping all of the demands of the law. He experienced temptation, yet he remained sinless, without any guilt. He never broke God's law, tempted in all things, yet remained holy, showing he is who he said he was, the Son of God. He never sinned against God. He never sinned against any other person, proving that he was the one the law was pointing to and preparing the way for all along. The regulations, the sacrifices, the festivals, they all pointed to Jesus. Jesus was born under the law, but he was never under sin. He was like us, truly man, but not like us, truly God. And he showed this by perfectly honoring God and then offering perfect obedience to God on our behalf. He was born under the law, verse 5 continues, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So if verse 4 answered the question, who is Jesus? Verse 5 answers the question, why did Jesus come down to earth? We see the mission and the goal here, the mission to redeem and the goal to adopt. Look at this this mission of of redeem. We've looked at this before. Redeem, it often was used in reference to a slave to purchase freedom, to, to buy off, to set free by the payment of a price. Jesus did not accomplish redemption merely by his life and perfectly keeping the law. Again, Jesus became like us in order to be a substitute for us, taking the curse of the law upon himself when he willingly went to the cross to die. Jesus came down to earth. He took on a human body in order to lay that human body down and to die on the cross to pay for sin and to redeem anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in him. You see, redemption comes only through the cross of Jesus Christ. His perfect life showed he was the only one qualified to be that substitute. He was the only one qualified to die on our behalf and to have a sacrifice that would be accepting to God, that would satisfy his righteous requirements in the law. He was truly God, truly man, under the law, remaining sinless, the only one qualified to be a substitute, to offer a payment for sin by dying in our place. You see, the testimony of every Christian in this room is this. Christ redeemed me. I didn't save myself. We praise God for His amazing grace in Christ. Christ paid the price for me. He took the death that I deserve. I get the life that only He lived. His new life His righteousness given to me freely by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I am so glad that you're here. You are welcome to come every week here to Oakhurst Baptist Church. We think coming to church is a great place for you to learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus Christ. But you need to understand this about us. We're gathered this morning here as a church 
All of us share the same testimony. Maybe different places we've come from, different circumstances in our life about our background, different ways that God used to lead us to put our faith in Christ. But we all share the same testimony in this. We've been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. His new life, resurrecting from the dead, has brought us new life and forgiveness and salvation, free righteousness from God by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've come this morning, we want you to learn more about that good news. Talk to someone who brought you. Our pastors will be at the different doors. I'll be down here. Our other pastors will be at the other doors afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus Christ and to know God today. It's amazing to be redeemed. It's an amazing gift of grace. But I think I agree with Jad Packer who I quoted in the introduction. As amazing of a gift as redemption is and being justified, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God, it leads to the greatest blessing of being loved by God as a father. The gifts don't end with redemption. Christ came to redeem, and the goal of all of this is adoption. Adoption is bringing the offspring of another into one's own family. It's a a real transition. It's not just acting like someone who's not your biological offspring. It's not just acting like they're your son. It's bringing them in. They are now your son. We have families in this church who've adopted, who have some biological children and some adopted children. Talk to them. I'm sure they'll tell you. They don't distinguish between the two. They're all their children, all part of their family, all sharing the same last name because they all share relationship and the same love in the same family, receiving the same care. Adoption is a a beautiful thing on an earthly level. But what an even more beautiful thing it is, what it points to, heavenly adoption, being brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The concept of adoption, just like it's culturally familiar to us, it would have been culturally familiar there to the original audience of the Galatians. But there's also a deep biblical meaning to adoption. The the biblical roots of adoption seen in the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel, where he adopted the people of Israel as his own. I will be your God, and you will be my people. In the same way, Jesus, the Son of God, he became a man and subjected himself to the law and died on the cross to redeem us and to bring us into the family of God if indeed we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The only way into God's family is to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. No one is biologically born into the family of God. Let me repeat that. No one is biologically born into the family of God. The only way in is spiritually, to be born again of the Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, being redeemed, a wonderful gift. It's, it's being set free from, from prison, declared not guilty and righteous. That's amazing. But consider not only being given your prison release papers, but being given adoption papers. Not just set free into nothing, but set free into something, and the greatest something, adoption papers into the family of God. That's how adoption has been accomplished. Verses 6 through 7, part 2, show us adoption assured. 
Adoption assured. There's no greater joy, no greater privilege than being adopted into God's family. And Christian, I think if we look at this passage, we need to understand the most basic and fundamental identity of a Christian is as a child of God. Verses 6 and 7 speak of the implications of being adopted by God. Look at verse 6, and because you are sons. And we've looked at this before. Last week we noticed why sons, why not sons and daughters? Well, the point is that in ancient cultures, those who received the inheritance were sons. And the Apostle Paul is saying, all who put their faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, you've all been made sons. You've all been made heirs to the inheritance. That's the point he's making there. And he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now that title, Abba, Father, we sang it earlier in our song. It's important to understand And even in my study this week, I think my understanding of this term was sharpened. Because maybe you've heard, like I've heard before, that Abba Father is kind of like a little two-year-old saying, Daddy, Daddy. Well, I think that's not exactly a complete picture of this word. I think the best way to understand what this title means is to look at how Scripture uses it. It's used three times in the New Testament. And here in Galatians chapter 4, this is the third time that it's used. The first time it's used is back in Mark 14, verse 36, when Jesus is praying, using the title Abba, Father. And this is an Aramaic word. Generally, it means father. It certainly denotes a a close relationship. It denotes affection and trust. Look at it in context. I'll read Mark 14, 36. Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, preparing for his death on the cross, in that moment, he prayed in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. It was a time of distress. He knew what was coming. Going to the cross wasn't an accident. He wasn't taken by surprise. In that moment, he prayed to God, the Son of God did, as Abba, Father. Second time in Scripture it's used, Romans chapter 8. Verse 15, again, it helps us understand a little bit more about what this title means. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba, followed by the word Father, when we see it in Scripture all three times, all three times, though, it's also a cry. In Romans 8, we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 6 of Galatians chapter 4, crying, Abba, Father. I think Scripture gives us the context to understand this title as a groaning, a longing for God the Father. It means that if you've put your faith in Christ, God sent His Spirit into your heart, and now you have this longing for God the Father that didn't exist before you were a Christian. Maybe you believe nice things about God. Maybe you even believed in the concept of God. But upon the moment of your conversion, being convinced of who God is, who He is in Jesus Christ, and putting your faith in Him, there became this groaning and longing in your heart, this desire to live life close to God that can only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. That's how you know you're a son. You love God. 
You long for him. You want to live your life close to him. It doesn't mean you never sin. It just means that your response to sin is a groaning and longing. God, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to think like this. I don't want to speak and act in ways that dishonor you. Lord, I want to live close to you. I want to continue to repent of my sin and turn away that my fellowship with you would deepen. Crying out, Abba, Father, it's a groaning, it's a longing that shows the presence of God in your life and that you are indeed a son of God. Galatians 3, verse 6, again, the third and final time Abba, Father, appears in Scripture, that phrase, crying out, once again appears. That pictures a loud cry with deep feeling. The, the picture here, sons have the privilege to cry out to God as their father. Consider the, the amazing privilege it is to approach a holy God, the creator of the universe, the one full of power and might who created all things by the power of his word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Sons not only have the ability to approach this same God, but to approach him as father, the one who's full of power and might, to approach him, the, something that was reserved for Moses in the old covenant, now in the gospel and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, all believers are sons, and therefore all believers can approach a holy God as your loving Father. To know God as your Father is the greatest blessing you could ever know. No other religion will tell you this. You don't get this in any other religion. All the world religions will tell you, do this, do this, do this, and maybe when you die, you'll find out if you've done enough good to go to whatever it is you've been promised. That's not the story of Christianity. Christianity is we've done what's wrong. God sent his son to redeem us for our wrongs. Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, gave us new life to save us and therefore to adopt us and bring us into his family. We get the highest privilege you could possibly have through Jesus, knowing God as our father. Now, practically, this approaching God, it points us to our prayer life. First time in the New Testament we see it, Jesus called on Abba Father during difficult times, and Christian, so can you. In all your difficult times, in all your hardships, you can cry out to God as your Abba Father in confidence. As a child cries out to their father when they're in need or when they're afraid, so those with the Spirit cry out to God in our times of need and fear. Christian, how often do you call on God as your Father? He invites you in any and every moment. Access has already been given. Relationship already been provided. And therefore, we get the gift of approaching the God of the universe in prayer as our Father. Christian, live light in light of the confidence that God is your loving Father. In verse 7, we find the conclusion, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The main point here summarizing all of this, all Christians are sons and heirs. We all share in relationship with God 
as our Father. And so Paul's doubling down here. It's his final summary statement saying, Galatians, since you've already received the Spirit, you already have full rights as sons of God. You already have been made heirs to its inheritance. Nothing needs to be added to Jesus Christ and faith in Him. Being a son of God does not come by your own keeping of the law, but rather by receiving the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 12? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder how living in light of God's adoption would make a difference in your week this week. Let me give one big example. It causes us to live in gratitude. Far too often we find ourselves complaining, grumbling inwardly and outwardly, envying what God's given to other people, coveting things that do not belong to us. In those moments, somehow acting as if what God has given us is not enough, or it's not good enough, or it's not exactly what is right for us. In those moments this week, pause, ask the Lord for forgiveness, and consider how gracious He's been with you. Consider what He's already given you. You've received the greatest blessing of adoption, as sons of knowing God as Father. What more is there that you lack? If God's given you the greatest thing you need, then those temporary things that you feel like you need, they're nothing compared to the inheritance that is yet to come. You know, far too often we worry about the future. Think about how much of your life is spent worrying about the future. If we're honest, we spend a lot of emotional energy on that. It it causes tension in our horizontal relationships, often because we're worrying about something in the future. It causes us to overlook the people that are around us and the significance of the relationships God's given us. At times, you get anxious and you look to the future, imagining somehow a future where God's not going to be there where He's not going to provide for you, where He's not going to give you what is good and is right. In those times, brothers and sisters, remember your adoption. God's already given you the greatest thing you need, and you can cry out to Him at any time in every fear and be reminded of His ongoing love and care for you. God loves you. That's all you need for the future. You can cry out to Him in any trouble and challenge and circumstance Your future is sure. The spirit inside of you is a guarantee, is a down payment, it's a deposit on what is yet to come, full inheritance that is unfading and unending, reserved for you in heaven with Christ, secured. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can take you out of the hand of Christ. Your destiny is sure for a time. You're living life in this body, enslaved in a way, if you will, one day, finally set free from the presence of sin to live in unending fellowship with your Father in heaven. The best is yet to come. Anxiety makes no sense in our lives. Rather, let's turn to what does make sense, Jesus. He's the one through whom we can cry out to God in any and every situation. He loves you. He cares for you. You may not know and you can't know what tomorrow holds, but I can tell you what is sure, Christian. God loves you and He will never stop providing for you. He is with you and He is for you. God sent His Son that we might be adopted as sons. The law was successful in preparing the way. 
Christ was successful in his death and his resurrection, and there is no greater blessing than knowing God as your Father. And it is all by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we're saved. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would take the truth of your word and by your spirit that you would impress it upon our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would marvel at the grace that you've shown us through your son Jesus, the grace recorded in the pages of the Bible, the grace of being redeemed and forgiven and saved and adopted into your family. And Lord, we pray you would help us to not live as orphans this week, but to live as adopted children brought into your family, living in confidence and in freedom in who you are, Lord, and what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, even now as we come to remember, or as we come to see a baptism, may we remember our baptism as a church of your love and your grace that has set us free in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.